Sub Lords of Pain and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday and welcome back to our new gen series, Myth Busting 1995. And we have reached uh, July 1995, July 23rd, 1995. Uh, from Nashville, Tennessee, we had In Your House 2, later subtitled The Lumberjacks. I um, just turned six years old. Uh, I was 15. There you go. Would have been my summer between year 10 and year 11. Mad. Um, so so uh, we have uh, a good bunch of matches to talk about here and so some, some interesting kind of shared universe stuff and some interesting um, seeds being planted for some other things and some angles coming to a close for SummerSlam and some angles kind of starting to get going for SummerSlam. So it's, it's a it's a nice show. And, and I think, you know, when you compare it to In Your House 1 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, you can already see the brand starting to come of age somewhat. Um, and they feel, it feels a bit more comfortable and it feels like they know what they're doing with it. And there's a few more matches on it and it's a bit longer. And, you know, it's soon become, of course, the institution that it became uh, In Your House. Um so let's uh, let's start with um, the roadie um, who has one of those sort of underrated uh, mid card or opener classics with the one, two, three kid. One of those sorts of matches that unless you were doing a project like this, you might not remember it ever happened. Um, but it's evidence not only that, of course, one, two, three kid was, you know, the workhorse of the era. But also, but also, I will, I will stand by that. Um, <laughs> uh, but also, the, the I road... just meant that you, you, you're on Waltman, so don't get too carried away. Is all I meant. Oh, okay, fair enough. I thought you were <laughs> d- disputing his, uh, his his place in the uh, in the pan- in the I, the pantheon. I wouldn't ever have that temerity to do that to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, yeah the, not only that, one, two, three, kid was was somebody that that had these kind of matches routinely, but also that uh, the roadie. His in-ring ability is perhaps somewhat underrated, given that he became primarily known as a tag wrestler and, you know, a tag wrestler primarily known for his mic talent uh, later in his career. But this is a really good match, like a really lively curtain jerker uh, with quite a mad finish, actually, with uh, the roadie doing a pile driver off the second turnbuckle uh, with the storyline that one, two, three kids was originally out with a neck injury and, you know, legit when he was in WCW got fired for having a dodgy neck. So it's all quite close to the bone really, but uh, a really enjoyable match to start the night. I thought I, I have a soft spot for it. I was, you know, banging on about this in preceding weeks. Uh, it was one I, about, I don't know, uh, about four or five years ago, I, re- I totally rediscovered. And um, when I did ever since I've sort of, uh, championed it at, at any opportunity that's been been fitting to do so. Um, very mobile, lots of of uh, sort of very visually impactful uh, stuff in there. Uh, you know whether it's uh, I think uh, you know things like flapjacks or being crotched on ring posts. Lots of diving from from one two three kid. The whole educated feet to coin uh, Jr's uh, famous uh, phrase visually. It's actually pretty breathtaking, as a lot of kids' work was, of course, in in uh, new gen. But it's got a nice pace to it um, as well, and like you say, it's got a real, real kind of shocking uh, finish that that feels like a big deal because it's it's happening in such a seemingly unassuming match. Uh, but it's it's kind of a you know, it, it's one of the reasons, A, why it's always fun to do these retrospectives, whatever the subject is that we're tackling with them, because you always you always inevitably stumble upon matches like this where you kind of, you know, you're, you're one, two, three kid versus roadies, you're Scotty two hottie versus Dean Malenko's, uh, that kind of thing where you go, man, that's actually, you know, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, but also be another example of, of, of why we're championing new day, uh, new gen, why we're championing new day, <laughs> why we're championing a uh, new gen and why we have done so passionately and for so long and, and in such protracted fashion, uh, because this is, you know, this is its DNA and there's no Mantar here. There's no knuckleball Schwartz. There's no, uh, Friar Ferguson. It's, it's one, two, three kid 
versus Rhodey in a brisk, fast-paced pay-per-view opener with a big, big conclusion to it that shows what the two of them can do as athletes and as characters and as performers. And it's it's marvellous stuff. And, of course, you know, siphoned off of the Jeff Jarrett-Razor Ramon rivalry uh, as well. So, um, you know, it's got a wider, wider context there too. So tremendous stuff. And as you intimated, a, a certain amount of... Um, uh, let's call it passive character development in the fact that, you know, there's the whole one, two, three kids neck issue in play. And it's funny you mentioned uh, D. Malenko v. Scotty Duhotti, because that's exactly what this match reminds me of, even down <laughs> to the finish, actually. Uh, it's a kind of almost like a minor version of it, um, and obviously much, much shorter, about half a length of that famous Backlash 2000 match. Um, but it's got a similar vibe to it. And I thought what's particularly cool about the character development here is that Rhodey um wins without Jarrett's help like you know it's it's like he's his own man in this and in fact they cut to Jarrett backstage who isn't even watching the monitor he's kind of you know sort of preening around and preparing for his inverted commas singing performance <laughs> which is um in itself a, a hilarious angle uh whereby... it is until it is until you you sit in um like I've done for, as, for research purposes for my book, when you sit and watch the Monday Night Raws around this time in bulk uh, and they play that bloody music video on yep. every single episode. So in a span of about four hours, you see it four <laughs> times and it gets to the point where you're about ready for throwing your TV out of the window. But for those who aren't aware, the, the, the angle is basically that um, they have Jeff Jarrett uh, obviously miming his, uh, his, his single, the, the famous uh, with my baby tonight and, uh, it's actually, of course, the roadie who sings it quite obviously. It's, uh, you know, it's his voice. And um, they kind of really play up to the fact that this is... Jarrett's been going on about being a country music star all this time. And they give him the platform and he's going to perform it live. They get some famous country guitarist to be, like, on stage with them. Um, and, of course, the whole thing is, is obviously leading to the, the fact that, you know, he'll be exposed as not having sung the song at all. Um, because Rhodey sung it. Yes, absolutely. And um, and that's when, in 1996, the Rhodey would become the real Double J, Jesse James. Indeed. And it's, it's funny when you think about how eventually his his final name that he would get as a part of uh, uh, the New Age Outlaws would be, you know, <laughs> the, the, road the Road Dog, dog. Jesse James. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so um, Character development, folks. Absolutely. And what's really cool, just a complete tangent, but when uh, Mazza and I did this for Attitude, like for the for the whole, you know, did the whole kind of uh, four year span of Attitude, what was really funny uh, watching um, those sort of mid to late 1997 pay-per-views was that the Billy Gunn cut adrift from, you know, from Bart and then road dog cut adrift from double j and they kind of had no purpose at all they had this really lame feud with like a match that was like on the sunday night heat equivalent of the time i can't quite remember the name of the show rockabilly uh yeah um and that was what put them together as a tag team and then that was actually what helped that chemistry to get going and then suddenly out of nowhere they were a really fun tag team going going up against LOD at Rumble 98 and then you know the rest is the rest is history um so it just goes to show that allowing these things to develop organically um is always the best way to do things and I think we mentioned the other week we're doing King of the Ring about Chad Gable and about how a couple of times he's kind of organically got popular through a a, a run in a tournament or a, a couple of matches against people and then they'll just cut it down and they just won't follow it up. Um, and that's why you don't get that so, sort of same development of, of characters in a lot of the cases. And the reason why, you know, um, something like that Seth Rollins arc that you've detailed um, many times in audio and in, in written form worked so well is that you could, you could clearly see the, the development of his character from, you know, the ambitious guy that came into the company to uh, the one that, that sold out or that bought in uh, to the guy that, that suddenly realised it was all the Emperor's new clothes to the guy that that um, finally got his redemption. Um, 
and obviously it, you know it's kind of still developing now so if you are patient enough to put that kind of character work in then you will get the results out of it i mean we're talking here about 1995 and really you know road dog didn't get the 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 full um fruits of what he'd started here until like the beginning of 98 which is which is an incredible testament really and it's i mean he's not exactly top dog either that's i think that's a that's a a prevalent point you know in the case of seth rollins you're talking about one of the most prominent performers in the in the company and while obviously roadie road dog jesse james whatever you may want to term him as would go on to become something of a of a cornerstone in his own right it's not like he's top guy you know, it's not like he's he's one of the top two or three guys in the company. This kind of character development happens at every level of the roster uh, for the the preeminent characters on the show throughout all of New Gen. You know, they all have character arcs, even down as I've already detailed a number of times on these retrospectives, even down to a manager like Ted DiBiase has a character arc. You know, so uh, that's again what makes it so satisfying to revisit these shows and you throw words around like purpose and momentum and all this other stuff they're all just dancing around the same issue which is you want to feel like the characters on the show are going somewhere uh, and and on new gen they always do feel like they're going somewhere Absolutely. they feel like they're always on a journey and you know i think the thing uh, to remember as well about particularly about roadie was that this is a guy who had no you know no real um wrestling experience who got to do this sort of extended apprenticeship in the in the public eye you know first as a valet you know then as a wrestler um and he got to he got the sort of time and space to learn his chops um and it's kind of rare that you see that happen now that they just kind of sort of give somebody just the right amount of experience at just the right amount of time just the right amount of exposure and of course, what they ended up getting out of it was one of the greatest tag teams of all time. So it just shows you if you put the effort in, you get the results. Um, but yeah, a very good way to, to start the evening, I thought. And also, we talked about um, uh, about sort of through the night stories. And of course, you know, this is the first part of a trilogy, really, because we then get the Jarrett performance. And then we get Jarrett v. Michaels that the roadie has obviously a very important cameo in as uh, as the valet so yeah a really again cleverly constructed show with an obvious theme it was in nashville which is the home of country music which is you know jarrett's hometown so the whole thing is just really well thought out on the whole um so uh we, we then get a fun little tag match and just to jump in and also uh you know another example much like with brett in the first one of a story that runs through the night yes absolutely so so we get uh the new king of the ring, uh, King Mabel, uh, with now uh, his tag team partner, Samo, underrated gimmick, by the way. <laughs> sort of, so you get the men on the mission dynamic back, obviously, after Samo had basically been the manager previously. And they, of course, take on Savio Vega, who was the finalist of the king of the ring that Mabel won. And Razor Ramon, who, of course, was a victim of the beatdown, having been in Vega's corner uh, during the king of the ring tournament um so again clever storyline progression uh classic pro wrestling stuff these guys were all you know in the maelstrom together in the previous pay-per-view so they will have a tag match and fight it out and i was surprised by this it was actually just genuinely a blast i thought like a really just a really fun old-fashioned tag match uh without a title on the line but you know, I thought it was pretty smartly worked. Um, they continued Mabel's push, uh, particularly as I think he gets the pin on Razor, um, which is quite a big, you know, quite a big scalp for mm. him. And uh, that means that when you do get uh, his challenge to Diesel at SummerSlam, he's basically, you know, he's won a tournament and then he's knocked off one of the guys in the company. So all very well done, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it kind of goes back to a lot of what we've been saying already on this, on these retrospectives, you know, as as a match in its own right, it's not going to be turning any heads. You're not going to remember it for a long time after the fact it's, you know, it's not a classic, um, but it's a nice contribution to the show. 
it, it has that weight and purpose to it again, as you just detailed with uh, with the, the case of uh, Mabel. Um, it continues the the robust introduction of Savio Vega to um, to this uh, to this fictional universe. Uh, all the while, by the way, since the moment he turned up, anchoring him with one of the most prominent characters, prominently established characters going in Razor Ramon. That's, you know, uh, he's he's allowed his own spotlight. He's allowed to do his own thing. He runs essentially uh, in in his own lane, but he's very closely associated with one of the most popular characters on the show. And that seems to be a very wise decision. Um, and they have a number of, of great tag team matches together, actually, throughout the year. Um so yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, there's not much more I can add to what you've already said. In in all honesty, uh, Mav, it follows up King of the Ring. Uh, it adds nicely to the pay per view. Uh, and again, you know, when you're particularly with these early in your houses, they they balance the art of being a great show rather than a show that has a bunch of great matches on it and and all feeling a bit disparate and uh, disparate and a bit sort of disjointed and and kind of um, overlong and overindulgent as a result of it. it. Never these shows never lose sight of the bigger picture. Um, and and you need matches like this. Uh, to help make that picture, to help draw it. Very, very well balanced show overall. This one, um, and I really, I really just, um, yeah, just appreciate the sort of the way in which people like Razor could constantly be moved up and down the card while never losing any of their aura. Mm. Um, and it's something which, obviously, down the years, people like Jericho have done really well. People like Dean Ambrose have done really well. Uh, but it's such an important role, and I think we've we've talked a lot about Razor since we started this this series because he was, you know, the ultimate utility player, really. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Back to rise. Uh, so we then get a uh, a match with Bam Bam Bigelow and Henry O. Godwin. Not much to write home about here, really. Um, Bam Bam, of course, had main evented the previous show so it just goes to show again he's kind of just now having a pretty can i just strong... actually can i just before we move on just to jump in there's a couple of segments that we've missed out that oh, I so we have yeah, yeah um where there's uh, after the first match they do an interview with the million dollar corporation um and uh it's essentially revealed i think that that dbsc has bought that a certain number of the lumberjacks on his payroll um, in favour of Sid, uh, and then later there's a, a, um, an interview with Diesel, uh, his lumberjacks, uh, and I think they toy with a conspiracy that one of them has been has been bought off. So the main event of this show is Diesel and Sid in a lumberjack match, um, and uh, there there's uh, uh, already a sense of ominous foreboding about um, about the odds being stacked against the champion, but not in that garish, hard to swallow way that they do nowadays, where it's so sort of heavy handed and crammed at you. Uh, it's, it's quite nicely played out. You know, it's, it, it's allowed to simmer in the background without ever being totally in your face about it. I like it. And also um, tension. they have a clever bit where they then go to the face locker room and, uh, and they're all denying that that De- DBS hmm. has bought them, you know, it's like there's a hilarious interview with Adam Bomb where he's like, they tried to buy the Bomb Squad, but he couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so no one's ever tried to buy the Bomb Squad. <laughs> that, I don't know, Vince. Uh, maybe Vince when he comes out thirtieth in the '94 Rumble. I mean, DBS didn't even know Adam Bomb existed. Never mind wanting <laughs> to buy him. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a clever idea, and it just goes back to. You know, DiBiase from the very moment he joined the company in the mid '80s uh, was doing this. You know, he he tried to buy totally. the, he tried to buy the world title. Um, you know, he, uh, he he he's just been doing this all the way along. He bought the number thirty spot in the Royal Rumble, so it's so like which remains one of my favourite Rumble stories. And it's so consistent. It's so consistent with with what he is for him then have tried to pay off some lumberjacks. Like it's, it's absolutely great. And you know what? Like we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but one of the really cool things about this main event, which I don't think I realized the last time I went and rewatched it, uh, you know, there's more in common with it, uh, with the Ambrose Rollins one than I I realized, you know, in the sense that there was an absolutely a storyline reason for it to be a lumberjack match. And the fact that they had picked 
their hand-picked lumberjacks who might help if you chuck the guy out on the other side of the ring. Like, all of that is really, really clever. Um, so, again, clear sense of themes, the pay-per-view, which, of course, will become even more pronounced once you get to, to Great White North and Seasons Beatings. Um, so, let's uh, let's have a look then. Um, oh, sorry. Do we want, do we talk, when is the Jarrett concert? Is this is that sort of around this time as well in the show? Uh, I believe, yeah, I believe it's just before Bigelow and Godwin. That's right, yeah. So, you have to endure this... Uh... <laughs> I'm just looking at my notes here. It just says, JJ plays a song. It's awful. Uh, it's more that you have to endure Todd Pettengill <laughs> uh, having this kind of bizarre thing where he um, he does impressions of drum beats with his mouth that the drummer... <laughs> of the band then has to copy. It's very odd. And, and then Pettingill was like, I could do this all night. It's like, please don't. No one, Mav, I have to take issue. No one endures Todd Pettingill. Todd Pettingill is a legend. Uh, yeah, but also, <laughs> also highly irritating at times. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's a, it's a fun, um, it's a fun segment. It's a terrible song, obviously, as we all know, but, um, it's also somewhat, uh, somewhat kind of uh, cult. It's probably one of the more well-remembered things from this era, I'd say. Uh, so we get that bit done. Um, Jerry Lawler's obviously beside himself with how great it was, and he and Vince is even like begrudgingly like, "Oh well, that was actually okay." Uh, <laughs> so all very fun stuff. Uh, so Bigelow and Goblin, like we said, nothing much to write home about. Um, when did they introduce the other Godwin? Uh, that is a good question. I wouldn't know off the top of my head. It's towards the end of 95, though, I think. Cause I, yeah, because I was kind of, I'd kind of, you know, forgotten that they introduced Henry as a singles guy before yeah. before they introduced the other one. Um, but yeah, so not much to write home about there, really. Uh, only five minutes long. Uh, you'd expect Bam Bam to win that match, really, and he does. Uh, all right, so we come to, obviously, the match that everybody remembers from this show which is the tremendous 20-minute-long Intercontinental title match between Shawn Michaels post-face turn. Is, I mean, it's his first pay-per-view um, since his face turn. Uh, against, actually, no, he's at King of the Ring, wasn't he? Sorry. Uh, his first kind of big feature match, though, certainly, uh, against Jeff Jarrett with the roadie in his corner. Obviously, Jarrett's the champion, having won that belt from Razor Ramon. Um and they just have an absolutely storming match with the kind of chemistry that you only really rarely see. And when I always say that I prefer first career Shawn Michaels over second career Shawn Michaels, it's matches like this that are the reason why. It's the uh, really the, the I mean, Bretton Akushi is, is great in, on the first one, first in your house. But this is really the first one that begins uh, what becomes a, a pretty much uh, one form batting average of every in your house providing a classic and a classic, not just of its era, but of pretty much any era. Uh, and um, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth that gets thrown, thrown around perhaps too easily, but it really is a masterpiece. And when you go back and you watch it, there's just something about it that just, and, and it's almost, I'm almost at pains to describe what's so brilliant about it. It's just a match that makes sense. It just is great. It's athletic. It's competitive. Uh, it's tense. It's edge of your seat. Uh, you know, the pace goes up and down. Um, there's a there's a there's a real sense of uh, motivation from Shawn Michaels, but not in that annoying kind of Dolph Ziggler way. Uh, but just in in a sense of he's you can tell that he's come back from time off, and he's not he's not just ready to go like he's you know he he's storming the gates of that main event at this point, um, and it does feel a little bit like he's beginning to outgrow this particular spot on the card. Quite honestly, compared to the year before, uh, it, it he watches a little bit more self assured in his performances than he did in the. I think he might have even had some time off over the summer night for um when he was doing heartbreak hotel um 
And by the time the match ends, it looks like you're watching Shawn Michaels from 1997, let alone 1995. Um, and it's it's when Seth had that amazing Intercontinental Time match with The Miz um, a year or so ago. Uh, it was a it was this Shawn Michaels Jeff Jarrett match that rem- that it reminded me so much of because it's got that same sense of constant motion. Uh, it's got that same sense of relentlessly sort of peaking and troughing drama, which really is a very, very, very much now a lost art today is, is this idea of a match going up and down and up and down. Now it just goes up, 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 and keeps going up until it ends. And I don't think that's anywhere near as, as satisfying. Um, I mean, it's, it's the kind of match that, you know, that 101 was built on because it's the kind of match that you can sit and pick apart and write three, 4,000 words about and still be left with material to cover. It's, it's dense, but it's just so brilliantly judged as well. It's, it's, it's not baggy. There's no real kind of wasted minutes in there. You never feel bored. Uh, it's one of those matches where everything just clicks. Everything just works. And um, what's really cool, I think, is that uh, Sean is transitioning from his old heel style to his new babyface style. And what I find really interesting is there's still aspects of the old, you know, heartbreak kid in there. Like he, you know, there's a couple of times where he pokes Jarrett in the eye, you know, but more as a kind of, you know, funny babyface thing to do than a, uh, than a kind of nasty heel thing to do. It's a bit like, um, you know, like John Cena uh, used to kind of cheat, but in a kind of, oh, wow, it's charming and babyface type of way um and i was watching earlier on the uh youtube series that wwe put out where they have people watch their matches with each other back um and so they actually have a watch along of this match with Shawn michaels um road dog and jeff jarrett and it must have been they recorded this i think just after jarrett's hall of fame induction because actually joke on it about how you know, uh, Sean's like, oh, I don't know why they haven't shown this more often. And Jarrett's like, well, there wasn't a lot of Double J on WWE TV for a while there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's really it's really fun to kind of uh, hear their reflections on it because um, the bit where uh, Sean goes up to the top and hits the elbow drop and does like a nonchalant cover, uh, they talk about how Sean didn't have that cut famous comeback sequence yet. You know, with the atomic drop, mm. the, you know, the slam, the go up for the elbow, tune up the band. Like, he didn't have that yet. And so it was literally just, um, you know, he, I think he clotheslines him and then he goes up to the top and he hits the elbow and he goes to the cover and he doesn't get the, and he doesn't get the, uh, doesn't get the pin. He goes up for another one and Rody crotches him um, on the top rope. And they also talk about how, when he does that nonchalant cover, how... Sean got in trouble with Chief J Strongbow, who was the agent that ran the match, after the match saying, like, you'll never win a title like that, son. <laughs> after it just won a title. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, think fig- I think more uh, figuratively, though. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's a match that they obviously remember really fondly, and they're, they're talking about the chemistry and the, the bits of the match that they show them talking about. You know, it's real... Uh, sort of simple stuff like um when uh sort of michael clotheslines him over the top and goes over like a sort of foley kitchen sink but then skins the cat back into the ring and does the jarrett strut like those little character moments are so well defined in the match um and they talk about that sort of really intricate sequence where they they keep going for hip tosses and then one of them will block and they'll kind of flip over the top and then they'll go for it again. And uh, I talk about how they just basically did that on the fly. And Sean was like, it wasn't often back then that I'd been in the ring with someone else that could do that. Um, so obviously they had a blast, you know, wrestling the match. And actually uh, at the end when they're watching it, Road Dog says that should be required viewing for everybody that's training to be a wrestler. A wrestler. Um, which is which is also like I just thought it was really interesting as well, um, because it is this sort of Shawn Michaels match that uh, young wrestlers should be watching and not 
the other type of well, this is Yeah, this is what I was just about to... I was sort of waiting for you to pause so I could say a similar thing in that, um, you know, I think that, that kind of strikes at the heart of, of when we talk about preferring first career. Sean, I know if our friend from LP Primetime was here, he'd be saying the same thing. Um, that strikes at sort of the heart of that issue, doesn't it? Because... Um, if there was such a thing as required viewing for young wrestlers training for for WWE, they would be watching second career Sean stuff. And I get the impression that Sean would probably recommend second career Sean stuff. Um, but the truth is that it pales in comparison to the stuff he was doing in the first half of his career. Uh, that's not to say, obviously, that his second didn't offer the second half didn't offer up classics in their own right you know SummerSlam at 2002 Wrestlemania 19 both particularly uh, prominent examples and tellingly right at the very beginning of that second uh, career um, but as it went on it did get a little bit more blinkered in terms of um, you know it had the blinkers on it had a, a limited view of the kind of character that he was portraying the kind of story he was telling in the ring it did start to feel a little bit like you were seeing the same, the uh, different riffs of the same idea, um, and frankly, it's it's less. Uh, what would be the f- best phrase here? It's less artistically ambitious than hit the work in his in his first career, and feels a little bit less well disciplined um, in terms of the self-editing process. And I and I think those are the reasons why first career Shawn Michaels, which because it happened during the new generation for the most part, doesn't get talked about. If people talk about first career Shawn, it's stuff from 97 mainly. Um, You know, his 96 title reign was a disaster, which to be fair, from a creative standpoint, wasn't, you know, from a character point of view, all that great. But, you know, a feast of of incredible wrestling um, told in, in effective angles. Same here. Uh, and so I think, you know, Rhodey's comments were, were probably made somewhat uh, with uh, part of his tongue in cheek, somewhat seriously. Um, but regardless, definitely strike at the heart of what I think is a real issue. You know, stuff from New Gen does get whitewashed and erased out of history. Hell, you want to talk about required uh, required watches for, for wrestlers, pick any Bret Hart match. Pick all the Bret Hart matches. You know, none of them get talked about outside of WrestleMania 13, full stop, or, or Montreal, of course. Uh, none of them. Uh, and uh, and that bothers me immensely as a Bret Hart fan, but again is another example So uh, of how New Gen just, just needs to be rediscovered, reassessed, and, and thought about properly. Properly. Not just snootily, you know, written off. Not just thought about in terms of two or three classic matches properly engaged with at every level and understood in terms of what it did for its entire roster that changed over time and made way for attitude and made way for things that followed but frankly my mind did it better i mean i am i was talking about this the other day um on twitter because it's the sort of historical illiteracy um actually means that all eras are just being sort of misunderstood and mischaracterized and um and it's why i think it's important we do series like this but you know the the careers of all wrestlers get mischaracterized even ones that sort of left yesterday you know so um it, it didn't take long for the narrative of, of dean ambrose's we career to be it was just a missed opportunity and nothing else um it you know it didn't take long for people to decide that, um, I mean, I even, I, I, you know, I saw a tweet today from somebody saying that, um, you know, Seth Rollins doesn't connect with hardcore fans. Uh, and it's like... Well, if we get into that, I'm going to start clawing my eyes out. Uh, but this is the thing, though, isn't it? It's, it's like people... I guess social media has reduced people to very unnuanced positions and you get it with eras as well and i was referring to you know a sort of a thread which you and i uh both saw um which was basically saying that this orange cassidy nonsense in aw is perfectly acceptable because um at the time when wrestling was most popular it was inverted commas all about comedy and 
you know, that completely is not what the Attitude Era was about at all. Like, there was sometimes, as a side effect, some things which were funny as a part of it, but the core of the product was very, very serious. Like, Steve Austin was not a comedy character. Um, The Rock was not a comedy character. Mick Foley was not a comedy character. You know, and they're essentially, you know, they're essentially comparing, you know, apples to oranges, like a sort of jabroni mid-carder whose only function is to be a kind of, you know, one joke uh, affair um, compared to like highly nuanced characters who grew over a long period of time. And so this this kind of historical misrepresentation is happening at all sorts of levels. Um, And even if you look at, as you say, matches that get revered, um, people will list the same 10 or 20 matches over and over again. And there's such a, a sort of, I guess, a sanctity around some of some of the choices. I mean, uh, we have discussed before, actually only a few weeks ago, about WrestleMania 25 and, and that Undertaker Shawn Michaels match and, and why, you know, it has the position that it has with people, but why it has its flaws as well and shouldn't be considered um, a sort of automatic pick for any kind of inverted commas Mount Rushmore, you know, for a lot of the reasons we've talked about before. So I guess it's a problem with the entirety of wrestling fans at the moment is that memories are so short and the temptation to to just go to these sound bites just seems to be there and so unless you are a dedicated wrestling historian like you or i you're gonna get this kind of uh ill-informed response i said i wrote a column many many years ago i can't remember in what context i can't remember what the column was about i can't remember when i posted it but um i may i what i do remember is i made the point at the end of it that 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 treating history as irresponsibly and approaching it as recklessly um, as WWE does is dangerous. Uh, and I can't remember who it was, but I remember it was in the columns forum and I remember getting a piece of feedback from someone that said, it's, you know, what on earth are you banging on about? It's ridiculous to say that that's, how could that possibly be dangerous? And you're seeing it play out now, you know, and I know that I'm in the minority opinion that says, you know, that the, wrestling is is being watered down to the point where it will just be two people pretending to fight and that's all it will be able to be Uh, and i know that most people seem at least in social media spheres seem to be enthused by what's happening in wrestling um it doesn't change the fact that in my honest opinion uh, you are seeing it be boiled away to a point where it's not going to function effectively anymore Uh, and you're just going to be left with uh something that is very proud of itself with few reasons to be proud of itself. Uh, and these are huge issues that we should probably dedicate a, a proper show to in the future rather <laughs> rather than, um, you know, than parlaying off into them on a, in your house review. But um, the point I was going to drive at is what happens is if you treat history recklessly and irresponsibly, you're not going to learn from it. You're not going to take lessons from it. You aren't going to leave people cognizant of it. And so when things do start to take a left turn, it's going to get egged on. It's going to get cheered on. People are going to be happy to see it. And all the while you're just putting an end date. You're, 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 you're putting a ticking clock over your own head as to how long this can last because it's not sustainable to see characters like Orange Cassidy in wrestling. Um, it's certainly not going to win over any new fans in, in large numbers to the point in which wrestling could be, the, as an industry, considered to be in a healthy state again. You know, because all it does is draw attention to the ridiculousness of it. You know, the, the, the Orange Cassidy joke is wrestling is a joke. You know, when you when you boil it down and you and you talk about it in in very finite terms, that's what it is. It draws attention to the fact that wrestling is staged. Um, it turns the very nature of the industry into the punchline of a joke. That's not a good idea, as far as I'm concerned. So, and you can't you can't possibly envision. I don't think you know, 30 years time, a wrestling industry that's going to be in any kind of a decent state, if you're going to carry on glorifying. Uh, characters like Orange Cassidy at the same time that the finer points of the the ring art, the stuff inside of the ring, 
is being diluted in the way that that's being diluted as well. When I see the Wednesday night war, so-called, uh, to me, it's just a race to see who's going to hit the bottom last. Um, and that's a very sad state of affairs. And it comes from this abandon with which WWE and it is this this is on WWE. You know, they were the ones who have been entrusted with the legacy of wrestling's past for the most part. Uh, and they have decided to just play fast and loose with it. Uh, and because of that, you have an overwhelming amount of ignorance um, when it comes to at least WWE's past. I mean, I characterize myself more as a WWE historian than a, than a wrestling historian, if I'm being totally honest about it. Um, but, you know, regardless, what stems then from that ignorance are strange ideas about uh, what wrestling is ultimately and you know we've we've kind of taken giant leaps away from what started this this conversation like I say maybe it's a conversation for another time but um uh you know the the whole second career first career sean thing i think is a is a microcosm of it and uh you know people need to be aware um that the second career sean michaels um at the very best is tip of the iceberg to, to, to contextualize it positively and, and, and in a way that doesn't necessarily impose my opinion on it, it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of the quality of his, of his ring work. I mean, you could go all the way back to the Rockers and, and even the Rockers in AWA, you know, I mean, the guy, the guy has an enormous legacy. Like if, if he'd never got to come back, he'd have still been one of the very, very greatest ever. Um, I, I guess the irony is, is that all of the history is there. Um, you know, you, you have every pay-per-view they've ever done, uh, every episode of Monday Night Raw, every episode of SmackDown, you know, every episode of NXT, every episode of, you know, um, I mean, increasingly they've got Sunday Night Heat on there. They've got so, there's so much there. All the, you know, all the WCW stuff is there. All the ECW stuff is there. Like, if people who weren't around for this stuff, and bear in mind, like, I understand that people like me and Brian Time and Mazza, like, we are all old enough to have been around for this stuff. Um, and I can understand how people that weren't around for it might have just heard either, as you say, WWE's version of it, or just have the barest understanding of what, of what was going on, which is why, I guess, you know, podcasts like this one exist, is to kind of, you know, to tell people about these things. But all the history is there. And I would just say to anybody, really, rather than sort of spending a, a, a week catching up with every new indie show or every new thing that's been going on, you know, in Japan, spend some time watching some old shows and, you know, question the narratives and, you know, find out that you can't characterize any era there was extreme violence during New Gen. There was technical wrestling during the Attitude Era. There was, um, you know, there was close to the knuckle jokes in the PEG in the PG part of, you know, the post brand extension stuff. You know, there's a uh, sort of fantasy and weird stuff during the Reality Era. It doesn't mean that everything in one era is going to be characterised the same way and i guess just to bring it back to, to bring it back to to sean in particular a lot of people are too young to know about first career sean um and uh, that's why i think i will always sort of spend a lot of time talking about writing about first career sean because he was my guy like this was the person that i enjoyed rest watching wrestle more than anybody else um and he was, you know, he wouldn't be quite so unique now, but he was a unique thing back then. He was a, he was a sort of unbelievably athletic guy who bumped like nobody else did, who sold like nobody else did, and was also incredibly, had an incredibly astute wrestling brain. And it resulted in matches like this one and matches like the Good Friends, Better Enemies with Diesel and, you know, matches like the 92 Survivor Series match with Brett and, you know, the guy was uh, was a genius, and obviously he was famously not the nicest guy backstage. 
got involved with a lot of politics, so on and so forth. Uh, but between those ropes, he was a genius. And it's amazing to sort of see him at his absolute peak, you know, because bear in mind, like when he came back, it was amazing to see what he could still do, but he was not in his athletic peak as he was here either. So what you're getting to see is kind of Sean at the absolute peak of his physical powers um, in an era where there was better storytelling and therefore you kind of get the best of both worlds. In an era where there was storytelling. Well, it's probably a little bit harsh on 2002 to say there was no storytelling, but but yeah. Uh, I, oh, I was thinking I was thinking 2019 to be fair, not 2002. <laughs> yeah, qu- well, quite. You know, I mean, like Lee said about about Sean's uh, 2018 uh, wrestling career, the better. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, anything more you want to say about about Jarrett and um, and Michael? I suppose we should talk about Jarrett a little bit, just in the sense that I guess we did when we when we did Razor, but I mean, the one thing that was consistent with Jarrett, at least up until you know, the middle of the 2000s was, again, the guy could really go, that guy could really go in the ring and seemed to have great chemistry with everybody. I mean, during Attitude, he obviously has great matches with X-Pac, you know, that amazing tag team with Owen Hart. Uh, So, again, the guy with a huge library of great matches. Uh, Yeah, I mean, to be honest, there's not much more I can add in any regard, really. Uh, Jarrett had a cracking 95 in in WWF. I think this is his last... uh, pay-per-view appearance for them in 1995 actually um don't quote me on that i might be wrong but i have a feeling it might be um and uh you know it takes two to have a great match ultimately so you know he deserves half the credit at least yeah i mean i just i just think he's one of those guys that again maybe because of the fact that he was somebody that worked for tna and well invented tna essentially it meant that most of his WWF work didn't get seen and barely any of his WCW work got seen um, because obviously like they, they kind of only ever show WCW in reference to, uh, you know, to, to beating them, I guess. So now that he is in the Hall of Fame and I think he's working backstage in some kind of capacity, uh, means that, uh, yeah, you get to sort of actually put him in his proper historical context as, as somebody that was a, a key contributor to New Gen and a key contributor to Attitude as well uh, in his two spells with the company. Um, okay, so the tag champs Owen and Yoko uh, defeat the Ally Powers in a tag match. Again, um, just like we saw with the Ally Powers at WrestleMania 11, um, it's a really interesting idea. The two big muscular guys in Lex and, uh, and Bulldog uh, taking on uh, sneaky Owen and Big Yoko. Um, again, it's it's a match that adds a little bit to the card. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Huge fan of. Um, sorry, I was I was momentarily distracted there by Joe Swinson meme. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, a fun match. Um, I love one of the things I love most about it is that you get that great double suplex on Yoko. Um, I think I think right at the end of the match, actually, um, which is such a wonderful. I, I'm, it's such a shame Lex didn't stick around to do more as the Allied Powers because I think they were a great team, man. Um, and to see, especially Lex, to be a part of that with the history that he had with Yokozuna on the Intrepid at SummerSlam at WrestleMania, um, and then immediately get you get undercut from that that sort of that elating moment with um, a bit of a cheap win for the, for the villains. And it's such a wonderful um, uh, contrast. You know, one of the things I always remember being taught by one of my English teachers was to, was that one of the most effective tools you can have is to, to immediately counter uh, uh, comedy with tragedy or tragedy with comedy. Uh, And uh, it's, I mean, it's obviously not, anything like tragedy here but to or comedy for that matter uh, but to take to suddenly go from such a huge emotional high to then just a cheap win i think is 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 a great touch um and you know listen gone on record many times already for about my love for yoko and owen as, as a tag team they are one of my absolute favorite elements of 1995 maybe even of the entire era um and this is another great entry for them yoko and owen just basically went about their business having great tag team matches for a year and you know we saw with the revival what can come from that and i'm not saying that their reign is necessarily on that 
the level of Revival's work in 2016. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it's it's another example of a team that just go about their business having great tag team matches. And what great tag team wrestling can add to a product and to, to any given card. I like the fact as well, you want to talk about card structure on this, this show. You already mentioned earlier that it's a well-balanced show. I love the fact that you go from that sweeping epic Intercontinental Championship match to a little bit of a shorter, punchier, funner affair with Yoko and Owen to give just enough of a reprieve before the kind of the big man, big fight feel main event of the Lumberjacks where the story of the night sort of climaxes. I think that the top end of this card construction is brilliant. And you've also got here um, at play... Some interesting little seeds being planted in that obviously uh, Bulldog would, you know, defect to to Camp Cornet, uh, not too terribly long after this. So the fact that they're in, he's you know Bulldog's in proximity with Owen and Yoko and Jim Cornet and stuff is 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 kind of interesting little bit of foreshadowing too. So that's quite a, a, a nice little look ahead, I think. Absolutely, comes um, into particular play at the following in your house. Which uh, we'll, we shall we shall look forward to covering. Um, so yeah, we talked a little bit about the main event already in the sense that it was very well set up. There's a good reason why uh, we have lumberjacks in the first place. Um, there's uh, again a sense of of great sort of uh, unity with the million dollar corporation and that like they cut like a promo where it's you know Tatonka does most of the promo and then Sid just says something weird at the end. <laughs> but it's like they're all sort of collectively uh willing sit on to win the title it's like it's not one of those heel factions where they're kind of like you know uh like arguing over who's gonna be the guy that goes after the world title they're all set on making sid the world champion which i which i really like it's like they're all uh on message i guess is the uh <laughs> <laughs> is, is the political term it's like it's the, like you know the thick of it or whatever but um, <laughs> DBOSI is Malcolm Tucker. Get Brexit done. Definitely not. <laughs> Veto that. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's very well set up. Um, and then of course uh, the growing uh, or regrowing, I should say, Michael's Diesel friendship comes into play as Michael's plays a a pretty instrumental role uh, in the ending to the match, uh, sort of taking out the heel lumberjacks. Uh, so that uh, Diesel can triumph. I have to say that I was delighted earlier when you drew the comparison to the Ambrose Rollins uh, lumberjack match at SummerSlam because when I when I um, first rediscovered this match again about five years ago, it, it, it was about a year after uh, that SummerSlam match had happened, um, and it really kind of hit me in the face the the the, the comparisons you can make between the two, um, and also. Uh, research over the last year I have been gearing up to write that in my coming book as well so it's wonderful to finally have found someone else and of course it would be yourself um, to sort of jump on that train somewhat um, it's obviously not at the level of quality that, that the Rollins Ambrose Lumberjack match is at in SummerSlam 2014 but one of the wonderful things about this and where I think those comparisons come from or, or could be seen to have come from is there are a huge number of ideas in play with this Lumberjack match that make the Lumberjacks particularly relevant to what's going on. It's not just a match with a bit of window dressing around the ring. Whether it's the Shawn Michaels-Diesel relationship that in its own way resembles elements of, of what Ambrose and Rollins would do in their later tenure in WWE. Um but, you know, there's uh, Diesel, I think, at one point actively attacks Lumberjacks, which has been done in other Lumberjack matches. But it's the it's the manner with which it sort of plays out that feels reminiscent um, or I guess precognitive would be the word of uh, of uh, Rollins and, and Ambrose. There's a lot more interaction with them in, in, in a number of different ways uh, that remind of that. Um, and separately, apart from those comparisons as well, you know, you've got. The, the idea of Ted buying a lumberjack. You've got Mabel doing a big cameo in the match. You've got Sean running around helping his buddy out. You've got brawls between the lumberjacks. As a main event, I mean, yes, it ends with a big boot. So it's, it's you know, the, the action between Sid and Diesel itself could be said to be lacking. But it's the way that it decides to 
in what we've already discussed in the past on this show with with previous pay-per-views we've already revisited maximizes use of a very simple setup uh, to create a very satisfying creative output i'm not sure all of the ideas necessarily come together in a particularly effective way um but I think had they have done so, you could be looking at what would have gone down as a very special, uh, surprisingly special match. It feels like a match that has a lot of charisma about it. And it feels like a match that wants to be liked and works very actively to make sure you like it. Um, and is interested in experimenting with the genre of a lumberjack match in the way that Rollins and Ambrose would do um, much later on. I know it's a, it's it's going to sound like a bizarre comparison to anybody listening. The only thing that I can say is find the time to watch this and then watch Rollins and Ambrose. Uh, and a lot of those sort of um, uh, comparisons uh, will, I think, even if for intangible reasons, jump out at you. It's a, it's a lively match as well. You know, it's one where there's always something going on, which I think is important. And actually, like just like their first match together. Um, you know, these are two, you know, close to seven feet guys that could move, beating each other up. And, you know, when it comes down to it, that's what pro wrestling was built on. <laughs> so, like, I'm kind of fine with it. Um, you know, I think it's a decent, the action in the ring is decent well, enough in its own right. Crucially, they aren't aware of themselves. And that's what's so wrong with so much wrestling today that I can't get into is how self-aware it is. Uh, it, as you just said, it it watches as two guys trying to beat each other up. It doesn't watch as two guys pretending to look like they're trying to beat each other up. And that sounds like a semantic quibble, but there's a huge difference between those two things. Well, this is the thing as well, isn't it? Like, um, you, you have a generation. I mean, so again, it's getting into into big, big territory. I guess you have a generation of wrestlers now who who are, for want of a better term, marks. I think, well, I think it's interesting because, uh, and, and now we're really going to go on a tangent because I'm going to talk about Star Wars for a second. Um, you know, there were a lot of people who were unsatisfied with Episode 7 because it felt like a retread of Episode 4. There was a lot of people who were upset with Episode 8 because it did things with particularly Luke Skywalker's character that a lot of fans didn't like. Um, one of my concerns when they announced the sequel trilogy in the first place was the last thing you want to do is... You know, as much as people ragged on George Lucas for the prequels or whatever, you the worst thing you could do is take a a a a, a story that's so ingrained in popular consciousness like that and hand it over to the fans so that they can essentially write glorified fan fiction. And I think the the in it the way I reason I bring that up is because the wrestling equivalent of that is essentially what we're seeing. And I think that so much of it these days feels like glorified fan fiction rather than actual professional wrestling. And that's why I've become so jaded, because that's all I can see when I sit and watch most of it now. And that's why I've not watched any of it since... When was uh, Clash of Champions? September? September yeah. um, I haven't watched a minute of it, you know, because I just can't. Because all I see is 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 seemingly... And I don't know how to wrestle. I've never, I've never done it, but I've seen enough of it to know what it looks like when I see it. And what I see now doesn't look like it. It enough for me to say that's wrestling it's just it's 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 people playing at it it's always it's, and then and then and then i see you know then i see uh uh i think i saw one of the young books actively explaining their booking process to someone on social media and then you're like well now it's just like you, you're talking to one of your mates about your sunday hobby e-fed rather than a fucking you, whatever yeah no it's it's i think it's always dangerous when People that are huge um, fans of something uh, try and bring every influence that they've gathered over their fandom into, um, you know, into their day to day work. Because, um, as you say, like what they really enjoyed watching growing up might not necessarily be with what fits with their character or what fits with the writing of the time or what fits with the angle um and it used to be that a lot of pro wrestlers weren't wrestling fans growing up they were you know people that just fell into it for various reasons and just sort of learned the business the old-fashioned way um and it's it's a bit different when you have people whose you know lifelong dream was to be in wwe 
And if you're someone that's clever enough, if you're someone like Edge, you can make that work for you. But the amount of talents that are as smart as Edge is minuscule. <laughs> like, and that's where you get the problem. So, I mean, there's, it's, there's, it's all rooted in so many factors that we could, we could probably fill a year with of, of right side of the ponds talking about it and trying to, to pick it apart, isn't you know, because it's there's so many cultural reasons. I think, um, speak about wrestling culture, not necessarily Western culture, wrestling culture. So many cultural reasons why things have gone the way that they've gone and continue to go the way they continue to go. Um, you know the historical ignorance we were talking of earlier. And I know it all sounds a bit sanctimonious and who are we to say it, but you know, it's our view. So we're saying it. And uh, I think historical ignorance of, of um, a lot of the past is, is one of many factors that plays into it as is a, 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 a lacking self editing process. I think there's still a, a, a legacy of Russoism that's active in the, in the industry. I, although a lot of people would be shy of referring to their own philosophies that way. I think social media has had a massively toxifying effect on things in a way that has only done damage rather than helped any, anybody. Um, I can't see a single positive that's come out of, of social media and uh, being so suddenly so foremost in, in, the wrestling industry i mean you know the list goes on it i think it's 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 um it's a sad state of affairs as far as i'm concerned now it is and it's not it's not it's not irretrievable but it's certainly um certainly the case as you say the the inverted commas like fan fiction aspect of it is quite is quite distasteful and the the self-awareness um can be can be incredibly grating at times and i guess as well like the older you get the more angles you see and the more you realize that that pro wrestling is not always the most original of, of storytelling industries and that everything will get recycled eventually we're at, we're at a very uh, everything's crystallized now nothing's changing you know and, and i know that people are excited about AEW. it's great to see people excited about AEW. But the only innovations that are happening in wrestling now are ones that draw attention to the fact that it's staged, are ones that uh, I personally feel erode the integrity of the industry and as a result are toxifying in their effect. You know, whether it's a gimmick like Orange Cassidy or, um, you know, uh, referees refereeing a match between two invisible wrestlers, you know, or Kenny Omega wrestling an infant child or, a, or an inflatable doll. You know, these may seem harmless, but I think that they begin to stack up and they erode at, at, at the necessary core integrity of the industry that should not be self-aware in its product. Um, and, uh, you know, but but those are the only changes that are happening because outside of that, everything else has crystallized. It, it's the same gimmicks that we've had for the last 20 years that aren't being rested or cycled in and out. It's the same. I mean, even down to the same pay-per-view names, it's the same. It's the same uh, legacies that are, that are uh, that are glorified. It's the same sound bites uh, about the past. It's the same philosophy year in and year out. Um, even the biggest change in wrestling in years, which is obviously the 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 coming of AEW, the excitement for that is rooted in what happened in the late 1990s. So even that is really people just kind of uh, diving into. Uh, uh, a desire for the past to be born again um and there's as far as i can see not only is there no real progress i can't see any real desire for progress either um that's healthy at least um and that is going to ensure that there is a wrestling industry in 30 years time maybe even 20 years time um at least one that is still close enough to resembling professional wrestling as it has been to warrant being called professional wrestling. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to see these things are always cyclical. Um, and you know, we are, I think in a, a bad part of the cycle now. Um, it doesn't take but, much. But the, to... the, the, the issue is the cycle has never gotten to a point where, you know, you think about, um, just the, the, the way wrestling functions now, the, the sort of big marquee matches, you know, Hell in a Cell, ladder matches, TLC matches, unsanctioned matches, whatever they may be. The, the youngest has been around for 20 years, you know, and we've never been in that kind of a situation before from, from the industry's uh, perspective where nothing new has come along and, and sort of stuck or nothing's been retired. Um, you know, there, there needs something drastic 
desperately needs to happen um, on a on a very fundamental creative level um, to try and just reset the board. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I think it's uh, it's clearly um, there's clearly a lot of staleness at the moment and the need for, if not a new broom, then at least a sensible broom. Uh, so be interesting to kind of see again reflect back on the past uh next week when we have a look at SummerSlam 1995 um it, of course infamously main evented by king mabel uh so uh, we'll we'll have a lot to talk about next time around as well as always on the pond i hope you've enjoyed the show everybody uh including our tangents and uh <laughs> and uh diversions which of course has always been um the, sermons the, the the fun of, of listening to the pond of course has always been the fact we never stick to one point um so yeah. uh obviously do listen to rest of lop radio's shows including uh our very own plans sports entertainment is dead um all of our shows are now also available on youtube as well as the usual places um so you can have a look at that uh, thank you to imp for doing all of that work for us and um We're going to see you next week. So until then, have a great weekend and we'll catch you next time. Bye.